Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Thank you so much for joining us on this Friday afternoon. Uh, it is Friday night in the big town. I'm joined by my two co-hosts, uh, as always, Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? Hey, good to see you. Thanks for uh, thanks for guiding the ship last week, you guys. I appreciate that. Hey, man. This is uh, my pleasure. <laughs> also, of course, is Bailey Perkins right? Hello, ma'am. Hello, Andy. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. It was fun, I will admit, to uh, listen to the podcast without... I didn't see your notes. I didn't know what you're going to talk about. And it was just fun to be a listener uh, at home. That was uh, very exciting. Glad to make you proud. <laughs> uh, I did miss seeing you, I will admit. So uh, this week, we're going to talk about a few things. Uh, one, we're going to talk about uh, the governor's firing of the uh, Oklahoma National Guard's uh, head, Mike Thompson, which Scott's already shaking his head. I, I, we're all sad about this. I think... Uh, I think Thompson is also sad and a bit shocked. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Uh, I'm, we'll... I'm, fired, I'm fired up about this, Andy. And, uh, you know, I don't get fired up. Well, never. You never. Know, I'm, I don't ever get you up. I never get riled up. So the fact that this has me, that this has me wound up, that tells you something. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about redistricting. I know that uh, Scott and Bailey discussed it last week, but you know that I've been involved in this and I have feelings. So I'm sure... We'll talk about that this week and, of course, next week as well, because next week is dun, 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 special session. That's right. We haven't had a December special session in at least three years. This is uh, a big deal. Hopefully, it will remain a narrow focus only on redistricting, uh, but we will certainly talk about today what might happen and then next week what did happen. <laughs> I guess we'll do a recap. And I'm sure we'll cover some other things today as well. But first... We have some guests with us today. Uh, joining us today are uh, Wanda Felty with the OU Center for Learning and Leadership. Hello, Wanda. Hello. Uh, and also Roseanne Duplan, with, who's a policy and planning specialist with the Oklahoma Disability Law Center. Hello, Roseanne. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. And Wanda and Roseanne are joining us so we can discuss, well, the Department of Human Services, and most specifically, the disability waiting list, which I know is a topic that we visited about on the podcast from time to time over the last, oh, 186 episodes. Uh, and because it's been a frequent topic at the legislature from both Governor Stitt, his predecessor, Governor Fallon, you know, leadership uh, brings this up. I think it's been in the last three state of the state addresses from our governors. Um, it is something that people are very aware of. And I will admit, when I started Let's Fix This five years ago, uh, and I met Aaron Taylor at the Capitol, this is like one of the first issues uh, and advocate kind of groups that I met that had been working on this already for years and were already so frustrated. And it was just a problem that I, when I first learned about it, I was like, well, this is an egregious problem. And we're going to talk about today how it's not fixed yet, <laughs> sadly. So uh, maybe a good place to start is about what the waiting list is, where it comes from, and the waiver programs that kind of go into that. Uh, Wanda and Roseanne, I'm not sure who would of, of you want to be the one to kind of jump into that, but feel free to kick us off and set the stage for us. So this is Wanda, I'll go ahead and jump in. So 
what the waiting list is for is for people in Oklahoma who have an intellectual disability that will need or do need long-term supports. In Oklahoma, we describe um, a person with an intellectual disability as having an IQ of 70 or below. So that's kind of the criteria. Historically, when I say historically, I mean way back in the day, the way states supported people with intellectual disability is they put them in institutions. This is a waiver to say Medicaid will pay for an institution, but you're waiving that right to an institution to get services in your home and community. So that's the waiver piece. It's a Medicaid funding and it's an access. So families turn in their application and are so excited because they learned about a program and they're told at that point, thanks for the application, stand in line and wait. That's the waiting list. So is it correct to say, Wanda, <clears throat> like if, if I had a family member or a child who, you know, is, would need these kinds of services, right? And we applied from those services, we applied for services from the, the government, the, the default is institutionalization still. And then the waiver program is a way that you avoid that. Is that accurate to get services that are better, I think, arguably for, for people and their families if they're able to get services in their home? Is that a, a correct understanding or no? So I, I'm going to say a piece and then I'll let Roseanne fix my piece. So <laughs> um, in many states, your statement is exactly right. The entitlement and the, the access as you go straight into an institution if you need help today. And you're waiving that to, to get on the waiting list or to get waiver services. Oklahoma only has private uh, institutions, and they're called ICF, IID, Intermediate Care Facility Individuals with Intellectual Disability. Those are privately run, like our nursing homes. And right now, they have the ability to say, I can provide care to that individual, I cannot. And typically, because of multiple things, they only provide support to those with minimal to moderate supports. Those individuals with higher support needs, higher hands-on 24-hour support, don't often qualify for that. So that's what makes that statement not quite right, because other than waiver in Oklahoma, there's not another option if you have a very high support need. I'll let Roseanne correct me now. No, uh, Wanda's absolutely right. Um, for anyone who qualifies for Medicaid, ICF is an entitlement. So if you qualify for Medicaid, you would automatic and you need this that level of service, you would automatically have the right to to um, be placed into an ICF facility. And there's not a waiting list for those. Many of them have open beds and would take take someone today. So the waiting list is to like Wanda said to get on that list so to say I don't want to I don't want to be in an institutionalized facility. I want my services in the community. Um, as Wanda pointed out, in Oklahoma, our ICFs really take people that need minimal supports, which isn't necessarily the case that we see in other states. Typically, we think of people that need to be in an ICF facility as those folks who need, and actually that is the Medicaid requirement, an institutional level of care. And in most cases, that's a much higher level of care than what we're seeing here. 
we kind of had a conversation recently. Why do we think we got, how do we think we got there kind of backwards? And we think it's because, you know, at one time we did have state run institutions here in Oklahoma. And we think that the, those folks who had that higher, le higher level of need went to the, to the state run facility where they provided that, that more intense care. And the folks with the lower level went to the private facilities. And when we closed our state institutions, which was gr a great move on this part of Oklahoma, we never, we never did anything with tweaking the, the way we run our ICFs. So they're still taking folks with minimal needs. Um, if, you, if, if you have an, an individual that has any kind of behavior, they wouldn't qualify. Um, if they have any kind of complex medical need, and I don't mean super complex, I mean maybe persistent seizures or need a lot of medication. Those are but not. They, yeah, they take medicine. They have to take medicine for diabetes. They won't qualify. Yeah, right, and, and right. maybe if it's if it's someone whose diabetes is pretty under control, maybe they would take them. But anytime there's it becomes complicated, they no longer take them. So, so that's kind of how that happened. Wanted? Did you want to tell them about what the services are? For, for those people on waiver? Sure. When a person comes to the top of the waiting list and they qualify for the DDS waiver, the services consist of, and I'm going to try to use typical terms, not the, the primary service is direct support. So in, in Oklahoma, we call it habilitation training. So instead of rehabilitation, it's learning and gaining new skills. So it's a specialist to help a person get become as independent as possible. But along with that, there's a whole gamut of other services, such as job training, job support, job coaching, uh, community inclusion. It can be therapies. It can be recreational. So really, if you think about all of our days, what we do in a day, it's how it's the support needed for an individual who has an intellectual disability to have that same access to life. That makes a lot of sense. So when we're talking about the number of Oklahomans who are uh, that fall into the definitions that you just gave us, how many people are we talking about on the list? And what's the average amount of time that people have had to wait before they've had the chance to access these services? So the last number I have on the waiting list, and, and again, we need to point out Oklahoma chooses and has historically chosen to work that waiting list in the order the person turns in the application. So that's how we know how long the list is. And the last number I had was 5,677, and that was at the end of October. And that waiting list time, the application that's at the very front of that line is dated July 15th of 2009. So that's a 12 plus wow. list. That's, that's incredible. And Wanda, you have someone on the waiting list or you're on the waiting list? No. Okay. Correction. My daughter was on the waiting list years ago and, um, she was on the waiting list. I really think it was four years. And back then it felt like an eternity. Mm -hmm. Four years felt like an, and I thought nobody knew, nobody cared. And I can't imagine what the families are doing and feeling now. And so since 2006, I have been an advocate coordinating a waiting list meeting 
inviting families to come to the meeting to meet with DHS director, DDS director, healthcare, uh, somebody from the healthcare authority, and then legislators since 2006. And I'm doing that because I remember being there. And so mine was four years and I almost broke. What is happening to these families now? Yeah. And I'm sure that there are needs that may be changing even over time as people have to wait longer and longer to get services provided to them. Correct. And, and, and remember, they turn in the application usually when they hear about it. The, the last numbers I got, which it's been several months since I've been able to get data from the waiting list. Historically, I've got it for years, but I'm not getting it now. But even when I was getting it, we would have a 70-year-old, 80-year-old person on the waiting list. And it's like, what are we waiting for on this? It's, it's incredible. So typically, I mean, families may um, decide to get on the waiting list at any time in, in a person's life. Sometimes we have those, those babies that are born um, where there's a diagnosis very early on. And someone in the, in the NICU might even recommend that the, that person get their child on the waiting list, knowing 13 years from now they might actually get services. Or like Wanda pointed out, we, we do have some older folks on the waiting list in their 70s and 80s. And what typically has happened there is their family has cared for them all these years. And whoever that primary caretaker was is now gone. So you figure if you have an 80-year-old person on the waiting list, who who's left in their family to take care of them? So so we, we see people in all age ranges on that waiting list for various reasons and length of time. Is is this like is this like so many things in our in our society where it is um it is stratified based on you know your like your income level or the other resources that you have. Like if you're, if, if there is a family of someone who needs these kinds of services and they are, you know, very well to do, they're high income, they have a lot of assets. I mean, can they just pay for these services out of pocket and get them from one of the agencies or do they have to get on the waiting list too? So, I, you know, the easy answer would be yes, money buys everything. But, but the truth is that there's the amount of money that the, the amount of support needed for an adult with intellectual disability that truly needs 24 hour support, it, it, will, it will break even a rich person. And of course, I don't know what billionaire's life is like, so I can't even talk to that. But I'm talking a, a family that might make 200,000. If you think about the amount of support that an individual could need, the thought of them paying at a rate of $15, $16, $20 an hour for 12-hour day support, seven days a week, it won't take much. So waivers actually, they do not count the family's income when the waiver is being determined eligibility. They look at the, the assets and the income of the individual. So, and that really does, if you think about long-term supports, that's really the reality. Long-term supports for any of anybody's children is not necessarily the family at 55 years old in my life of understanding. 
Interesting. You know, I, I didn't say this at the beginning, but I used to work at an ICF facility in Texas. It was a state facility um, that probably should have definitely been shut down. It was part of the, what do they call it? The state supported living center network, right? And uh, used to be state school when I was there. Um, and uh, it was a, a, tre- a tremendous learning experience. It was, uh, a, you know, work with folks with uh, the same same threshold. You'd have a, a be tested and have an IQ below 70 to be admitted. And we had people there, I think the youngest was eight and the oldest were in their 80s. Um, and there was a constant effort to to move folks from state facilities into the community. And I even have a, a, a cousin um, who was in the other boat. She had been at home with my aunt, with her mom, her whole life. And it wasn't until, you know, 10 years ago or so when I started working at that state facility that my aunt even became aware of facilities like that and group homes. And she was like, oh, well, there are resources out there. And she had never applied for disability or Medicaid. And it just, you know, honestly bootstrapped it as, hard, as much as she could. And we had to have kind of a difficult conversation of, you know, you're not going to live forever. And what happens to your daughter? And how do we start getting you connected to resources now? Uh, and Texas, at least at the time, didn't have a waiting list the way Oklahoma does. She was able to access resources relatively quickly. I can't imagine if you had just found that out and then started the conversation and learned you had to wait possibly a decade or more before you could even start to receive services. Now, uh, last month or so, there was a report that came out from LOFT, from the Legislative Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency, right, that uh, basically said things are not good. We have put in roughly $9 million in the last eight years, and the waiting list has not improved, uh, despite, you know, the pledges from the legislature and governors, plural, that things would be different. Uh, and so that means that there are still people on the waiting list who have been waiting for longer and longer. What else? Was there anything else in that report? I, from my quick glance through it, it was uh, a beefy report that said a lot. I'm sure there's more more takeaways than just that headline. So I'm going to start and I'm going to let Roseanne kind of add the, the, the meat of the other information in there. One of the things that's, that we need to, to note if our measuring stick happens to be the waiting list, that's a terrible measuring stick. And the reason that's a bad measuring stick is because families apply for services, just like you said, when they hear about it, when they learn about it, or when the waiting list starts moving. Why would I turn in an application to sit there and wait and have really no hope for 13 years? So the, that waiting list is really a measure of awareness and understanding. What is true in a measuring stick is the number of people being served by the waivers. So we've had waivers in our state since the 90s, maybe even early 80s. I can't remember. I mean, late 80s. But that's the measuring stick. And I'll let Roseanne kind of give you a good snapshot of that. Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that we really need to take away from that report is that even though we are putting money into working this waiting list every year and the the legislature has really worked hard to make sure that we're getting money. Um, We are taking people off the waiting list. We know that's happening, 
but the total number of people receiving services has actually gone down. So we're not building capacity to serve more people, which is the whole idea. We think we're adding people to services and we, we are taking people off that list and giving them services, but what's happening that the capacity is shrinking. And, and as we know, um, our system kind of was born out of lit litigation anyway. Um, the litigation over the Hissa Memorial Center, which was another state-run facility um, where there was abuse, as, as we've seen across the country and that happens in these kind of state facilities. And so the system was, was born and created quickly to, to settle that, that court case. So we've never really gone back and looked at the system and said, how can we, how can we make this better? We put it together quickly and we've just been using that system. So um, I think the loft report has showed us something that we've been tracking, you know, as Wanda pointed out, she does these waiting list meetings quarterly and historically since 2006, DHS has willingly provided her with data for these waiting list meetings showing how many people are on the list, how many people um, basically in each age group, uh, what kind of services are they accessing while they're waiting, which all of that paints kind of a picture of who are these people. And, and so we've tracked those over time and, and we, we know that, you know, in, in 2015, we were serving 5,612 people on the waiting on the waivers themselves. And as of June of this year, we were only serving 5,300. So after putting $9 million into it, and that's what Loft, I think, was really highlighting in their report that we're not building capacity to serve more people. We're putting more money in, but we through attrition, the folks that that originally became on waivers as part of that whole uh, HISM settlement are aging, they're passing away. So we're not using the money that we're that's coming into the system from attrition back into plans. It's going somewhere else in DHS. So this nine million bucks that the ledge has put in in the last eight years, what does that like? You said that's working the list. Is that staffing to try and process these applications? Is that funding to community-based uh, services to actually pay for services? What is that? What is that nine million dollars for? So, historically, when the appropriations for DHS is made, so that's in the appropriations budget. There's a separate bill that is a limits bill, and inside that limits bill, it says of the money I put in DHS budget budget, 1 million, 2 million will be used to work, take people off the waiting list and add them to waiver services. That's what that mandate is. So for every million dollars, historically, we have been told that it will add about 100 to 120 people to waivers. So for every million dollars, when I look at the appropriation, I should have seen the bump 100 people. 100 people. And then knowing life happens, we have people coming off, we should have seen just the, 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 the change. Because when somebody passes away or moves out of state, we should have seen another person from the waiting list add to that services. But the numbers, and that's what Loft showed, is the numbers are not showing that. One of the other interesting thing about the Loft report, the data I get, I get from DHS. 
Life Report didn't use DHS budget, or my understanding they didn't. They used the billable for Medicaid, what was billed and charged. So that's a different, I mean, while they're the same program, they used a different data set to make this report. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, because it just, you know, and I, I don't want to sneeze at $9 million because that's a lot of money, but it seems like for what we're talking about, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a drop in the bucket, right? I mean, this seem, this seems like this is a hundred, hundred and fifty million dollar problem. I mean, that's what, I mean, I, I, maybe that, maybe that do you, I mean, what, what kind of investment would it take to really address this in a meaningful way? Do we know that? There's been numbers over the years thrown out. Just taking the average, looking at the number that come off the waiting list when $1 million was appropriated. What was the number of people that went into which waiver? Because there's different waivers in our state. And then using that number to, to estimate. And, and I honestly don't remember that number because it was something that my brain would not retain. It was unobtainable. The issue is, why are we putting people on the waiting list and not having interaction with them? for 12 years when there could have been or maybe something out there that could meet a need, which would then possibly eliminate a crisis, which then escalates that plan of care or that need higher. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, and you're already going in the direction of what I was going to ask as, you know, what are those solutions that the legislature needs to do or consider um, to address this issue. I know last session, um, DHS in the legislature proposed um, adding that um, residency requirement in order to receive services as a um, air quote solution towards this issue. So can you talk about like, what are some of the things that um, would work and would not work in order to address this issue? So the, you're talking about the five-year residency requirement that they that they proposed last session, and they actually passed a five-year residency requirement that would require anyone moving into the state to be a resident of the state for at least five years before they could even put in an application for services. So that's adding on to the, the way that we already have another five years. Um, our office, being the protection and advocacy for, for people with disabilities, immediately brought to their attention that we that we felt that that was unconstitutional and um, they passed it anyway. Uh, CMS has since come back and, and said exactly that. Uh, Oklahoma, you can't do this, it's not constitutional. So um, they have not moved it forward with implementing that based on the CMS rule. There, there's been several things tried over the years, um, and they've got some projects working now. And we've put eight and a half million dollars into a contract with Liberty, uh, Liberty Health, to do an assessment of the waiting list, and to also maybe provide some navigation services for those while they're waiting. Uh, one of the things they did in 2018, and like this goes back to what Wanda said about that waiting list number not being a good gauge. In in 2018, we had I think at one point we had 7,000 folks on the waiting list. And then they did uh, what they called a cleanup of the list. They went through and attempted to contact every person on the list, 
prior to that, when you put in your application, you didn't hear from them again until you came to the top of the list, however many years later. So they tried to contact everyone on the list so they could get, make sure they had updated information, see what had changed. At that point, a little over 2,100 people were removed from the list. The bulk of those simply because they just couldn't contact them. Uh, so uh, the waiting list numbers dropped because of that cleanup. So different things over the years has caused that number to change. So the goal now, part of this contract with Liberty is to stay in touch with families, make sure that we're keeping them because there should, they found even after they did that cleanup in 2018, each time they pulled applications to work the waiting list. So let me be very clear. In 2018, the only way you stayed on the waiting list was that you had to affirmatively contact DHS back and say, I want to remain on the list. So everyone on the list from 2018 and on had contacted them. But even with that, every time they work the list, they're telling us that they're still closing about half the cases because they can't contact folks, which makes no sense. So um, one of the things I think the loft report also told us is that just putting money into this isn't solving the problem. DHS, one of their defenses to the report was that our costs have gone up. It's costing more to serve people. But that argument just doesn't seem to play out when you look at the, the budget reports in the loft report. The overall DHS budget has increased, but the DDS specific budget has decreased despite those additional allocations. So I think this is something that needs some long-term planning to see how can we solve this and not just keep putting money in that doesn't seem to be staying in the DDS budget. You know, I'll tell you, if you're a, uh... If you're looking for constitutionality and long-term planning, I don't know that the OK legislature is your uh, is your body of choice. Uh, that's been that's been my experience as a legislative watcher for the last few years. <laughs> long long long-term planning seems to be uh, anathema at Twenty Third and Lincoln, but uh, I I hope that changes. Well, Scott, it's like uh, as, as Scott knows, I had to replace my uh, heat and air unit in my house here this week. Because we had been throwing a little bit of money at it year after year after year. And eventually, you've got to just come to terms with the fact that you are not fixing the problem and you need to really invest in it. And the investment up front, while expensive, will pay for itself over time, right? It pays for itself in the, arguably, in the health and safety of my family in our home. The old unit was going to start leaking carbon monoxide literally any day. Uh, and so I think there's probably an analogy here that, well, DHS as a whole, right, has struggled over the last decade in many ways, particularly here, I think, with the, the disability waiting list. And and what we've highlighted and what the this report highlights is that that it's time to bite the bullet and to really invest in it in a way that's going to you know resolve the, the waiting list. And more importantly, like, get people the services they need and they deserve, right? Like this waiting lists exist because they're waiting for something. Well, let's give them what they are waiting for. There's the only thing between, uh, between us and that happening is will of, of the folks, the legislature. I mean, Andy, don't you think they'd rather have a tax cut? <laughs> well, I mean, that helps somebody, not the people on the waiting list. They, that's why, right? We cut, Every state agency was cut by an average of 40% between 2008 and 2018. 
four, that's almost half, right? You can't run a successful state or you can't run a government when you're using less and less money every year and trying to provide the same services. Uh, don't know if you know this, Andy, but correlation is not causation. And so I don't know that you could say those two things have anything to do with each other. I, Scott, just because they cut the funding by half doesn't mean that it's related. Okay. For all the new listeners out there, <laughs> that is Scott being, uh, what was the term? Pissy. Uh, huh? <laughs> yeah. Pissy, cranky, sarcastic. Also. Sarcastic. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to whip Scott in the parking lot after this episode. Now, um, uh, Wanda and Roseanne, before we let you all go, what I know listeners are at home thinking, this is egregious. We've got to do something. What can we do? Is there anything that listeners can do to help? So first of all, Scott, you're a great guy, but I have to say that the legislature is the only avenue right now, unless we're going to donate every one of our few bucks extra, which still won't serve it. So number one, I would say you have to tell your story. If you have a friend, a neighbor, loved one, if you even are, have the compassion to think this, we're a better state than this, you've got to reach out. The money is at the legislature. And I want to say also, after that loft report, one of the legislators in the loft report said, well, until you get this fixed, I don't know that I want to give money. Well, I'm going to tell you, for every dollar they give to the waiting list, if I am a family on that waiting list, that dollar is a dollar of hope, no matter what your number is. So we have to continue to fund the waiting list, knowing that we still have to fix the system. And that's the other thing. So, Andy, let's fix this. But the, this is not the waiting list. It's the whole developmental disability services in our state. And it's the commitment from our state as a whole, not just the legislature, but all of our citizens saying we are better than this. Yeah, I would just add to what Wanda said. I think we absolutely, everyone needs to be talking to their legislators. Like Wanda said, they're, they're the folks that actually have the power to fix this. But we need to ask them to not just give money. We need to ask them to ask for some accountability that goes along with that money. We need to know how that's being spent. We need to know who's being served. And we need, we need a comprehensive plan. And I, I think it's time that the legislature takes an approach maybe similar to that they did for child welfare and, and, and write a plan similar like a pinnacle plan, but for, for DDS services, how do we fix the system? Because like Wanda said, it's not just the waiting list. When you, when you come to the top of the list and now you've got this, services that you're going to get, you may not be able to staff it. We have a problem with, with actual service providers. So we need to look at the whole system, but it starts with getting the legislators involved and make, having them build a system that's going to work better for everyone. You know, I think so much of the time, um, the, what you see get done and what, what doesn't get done at the Capitol. And this is true in Oklahoma. And I think it's true in Washington. Um, what you see happen is reflective of who the loudest voices in the building are. Um, and, you know, thank you so much um, to both of you for being a voice for many, many people who probably don't feel like they have one. Um, um, and I think, yeah, if you're, if you're listening to the show, Obviously, you know, all my sarcastic joking aside, you know, if I could if I could do something that would make the legislature not the responsible party, I would. But, you know, I can't change the Oklahoma Constitution. So 
Um, it is. It's it's up to the folks that we that we send to represent us. Um, and this should be like this should be a priority. We hear all the time from our leaders about the Oklahoma standard. Well, this this you know you know this is this is not what that's supposed to mean. Um, so let's uh, let's let's put our our hands and our heads and our voices together and see if we can uh, shine some more light on this problem and get get something done. I think Scott's saying, let's fix this. Let's do it. Wanda and Roseanne, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for keeping this issue in the forefront. Yeah. All right, listeners, I will um, put links in the show notes um, for how you can get in touch with either Wanda and Roseanne or um, whatever organization they tell me that I should put a link to in there. Um, if you want to get more involved, I know in the past there's been disability day at the Capitol and there are opportunities to be involved on specific days, but I think their message uh, is, is clear and bears repeating that you can contact, you should contact your legislators about these issues, whether or not it directly affects you. Uh, you know, how we care about our community makes a big deal. I grew up in the church, right? There's a lot of talk about what we do for the least of these. Um, Come on, <laughs> we're on the same page here. All right, well, I'm going to let them go, and then we're going to move on to the rest of our show for this week. Scott Bailey, let's let's start with uh, maybe the most uh, recent news of uh, Major General uh, Mike Thompson being relieved of his duties as, is it pronounced, how do we pronounce his title? Adjunctant General. Ad, ad, adjutant? Adjun, adjutant? Mm-hmm. That's a that is a term I was unfamiliar with until the last I think forty eight hours of uh, of Twitter where we, I saw it many times. And it's really just the the top official of our Oklahoma National Guard. Yeah, exactly right. Mike Thompson was previously at DPS, right, the Department of Public Service. But prior to that, he led this role during the Fallon administration. That's so right. He's so he's one of the very few current um executives or or past executives now who has crossed administrations to maintain their top leadership role yeah i i had the the privilege of meeting him uh, a number of times a few years ago when i was on the radio with scott mitchell he was a frequent guest i think specifically about dps back then and just a top-notch guy i mean really impressive and in like several ways uh also an imposing fellow i would not want to cross him he's, <laughs> he's, very, he's, very a, tall. he's a big very dude <laughs> well and, and i think the frustrating part is not necessarily the um transition right and and letting relieving him from his post right yeah um, because it's typical for governors to change agency heads and leadership when they Um, are new into their administration to bring on, you know, their own people that they want to lead in different ways, right? But it is an issue of how he relieved General Thompson from his duties. It is not okay that General Thompson found out through Twitter that who his replacement was going to be, right? Like, all of those things are just not traditional of leaders in, in public servant positions who have experience in governance. It's just not the way that we're used to outside of, you know, the Trumpisms <laughs> that we've experienced over the past four years. But typically this isn't the way that that things operate 
at 23rd and Lincoln. Yeah. So there was, there's a really great uh, public radio Tulsa piece about this and I'll put a link to it in the, uh, in the show notes. That's the, the interview or the phone interview between uh, Chris Polanski at public radio Tulsa and, uh, and general Thompson. And it's a, a, a pretty honest conversation. Uh, I think you can see Thompson's respect for the office and for decency and those things in it. And, and he, explains that the governor had asked for his resignation back in October with the plan that he would stay until the end of the year. And so this abrupt change uh, was unexpected. And, you know, and I took Chris's credit as a reporter. He's like, I mean, it seems pretty obvious that this is related to um, Thompson's, um, we'll say refusal, although it was behind the scenes, right? Refusal to comply with the governor's order that the, the National Guard stop requiring vaccines. Uh, and and General Thompson says, you know, hey, we disagree on some things that are, you know, in national news. And he's like, that's part of my job is to advise the president on military or the governor on military things. And so sometimes we disagree. Uh, and it seems in this case, that disagreement may have led to his termination and his replacement. And while the governor's office has not confirmed this, the very first day that the new guy was in the role, he reversed the position on vaccine requirements. So it was very on clearly veterans that was, day. yeah, on veterans day. So that was very clearly like, that was the reason we, you don't have to say it. We all know it. We all see it. Um, it is astonishing to me, the lengths to which the state administration will go to undermine public health. That's a, that's a fair statement. Like, like not just not be helpful, but like actively be harmful. Well, and I don't necessarily think that it's related to undermining public health, but maintaining the narrative that they want set, right? Because some of the public health recommendations and standards don't align with this messaging point of personal freedoms and, you know, people being able to choose what they need to do and Oklahoma being fully open for business. You know what I mean? And so it's an active effort to try to maintain a narrative at the expense of public health. Right. Well, and that's, that was my concern when I saw the headline today that the vaccine requirement had been, or decision had been reversed or however you want to phrase it. Right. Um, and there's some nuances to it where it's only for guard members who are within the state. If you leave the state, you got to get vaccinated. And well, that's because that's the only way that's the only way it's and, and it, I mean, I don't know the legality of it because I'm not a lawyer, but I it, from the from the kind of quick, you know, uh, Google law school that I was trying to go to before uh, before we started recording today. It seems like if they are leaving the state of Oklahoma to like further their military training, go to any military school like then governor Stitt's command authority um it, it governor Stitt's command authority stops at the at the the borders of oklahoma so um if they you know there's there still is some you know a lot of guard members they want to go to they want to go to special schools they want to take special courses they want to they want to do those sorts of things because it furthers their military career so and many of them get deployments right, right. So, so they're going to have to leave Oklahoma borders to do different things that are connected to their duties and assignments. 
Well, and so my first thought when I saw the headline was, well, gosh, I hope we don't have some kind of winter emergency where we have to deploy the National Guard and we end up with a with COVID running amok through the service members, right? Like this is this is why service members are vaccinated for a whole myriad of diseases, right? From the flu to anthrax to typhoid, all these things, because you don't want to compromise the uh, the security, the efficacy of your military unit by some disease that could be prevented, right? And uh, and so I was just like, man, that that is a possibility. One thing that people don't realize, Andy, is that like our National Guardsmen don't just have assignments here in Oklahoma or even just the United States. Sometimes our National Guardsmen are deployed for international duties, right? And so it's so critical that we're keeping them protected as they're traveling the world um, doing their different services that that are necessary, not only to our protection, but, you know, to, to advancing, you know, whatever the, the, the assignment is. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, and I mean, General Thompson and National Guard were deployed to the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, right? Like <laughs> to defend democracy here at home. And one thing I'll add on that, I will say there's been an outpouring of support from people um, across the political spectrum who have respect and admiration for General Thompson. And I think that speaks a lot to um, his character and how great he was as a leader in the position that he held. And so um, that was something that um, I... Uh, was happy to see that I hope that General Thompson is able to to see as well as people, you know, thank him for um, his time in, in leading the National Guard in Oklahoma. Yeah, I think he'll land on his feet. He's a good dude. And I know he's got some good connections and he hasn't said what's next, but I'm, uh, I think on behalf of Oklahoma, uh, we hope that he's in some kind of leadership role because uh, our, our state benefits when he's in those positions. All right. Well, uh, do you guys want to talk about maps for just a brief moment? I, I want to hear you talk about maps. <laughs> yes. We've been waiting for that, Andy. All right. So as everyone knows, and as Bailey and Scott discussed last week, the legislature last Monday on the 1st revealed their maps. Finally, I think 22 other states had already released their maps and many states had released maps, received public comment on those maps you know, tweaked them, released another version, got more comments and had an iterative process, right? Where they were drawing the maps with real-time feedback from the public. Oklahoma did the opposite. We waited uh, more than 70 days after getting the data, released the maps. And Chairman Martinez basically said, the public comment period is over. And that was kind of it. Like these are the maps we're going to vote on. You can contact your legislature, your legislators if you're not happy about it, but this is what we're voting on. And so we are prepared for next week. Those, uh, the state and state house and state senate maps are not terrible. They're okay. They're honestly like a a teensy bit numerically better than the ones they released in the spring. Even those don't translate to any actual benefits. I don't think, but I think they're more compact on the whole. They're better on whole than than the maps we've had. The congressional map, however is not. Uh, as I think you guys discussed last week, the big change was to the 5th District, which 
currently is almost all of Oklahoma County and then Pottawatomie County and Seminole County. Those two counties together are only like 90,000 people, maybe 100,000 people. And the congressional district as a whole is almost 800,000 people, right? So if you look at a map and you're like, oh, it's three counties. Well, recognize that one of those counties is seven-eighths of the of the total population. So, you know, just seen on a map does not necessarily mean that there are equal number of people everywhere. And that's hard. That's I think that's hard for our human brains to really comprehend. You look at a map and you're like, oh, well, that seems like a reasonable size and shape. And you're like, no, no, it's almost everyone in this one little corner. So the what they've done is gerrymandered Oklahoma County in particular, which is, I will say, the most purplish county in the state. We don't have any uh, blue counties in the state. We have blue precincts, but not counties. And Oklahoma County, as we know, has been kind of trending towards purple territory. And they, because of that, uh, they cut it into three pieces. They they took uh, the southwest corner of the county and moved it or reassigned it to the third congressional district, which is all of Western Oklahoma. So it goes from the Plaza district in Oklahoma city and all of South Oklahoma city. And then it stretches to New Mexico, right? Like it goes all the way to the panhandle, all the way out. It touches Texas, New Mexico, Kansas. It includes Stillwater, Enid, like all of that's up there. It's a it's a big district because it's sparsely populated. I just want to add correct one thing that you said, Andy, because you said that they did this because the fifth district was turning purple. And I just feel like it's important that listeners know that that's not why they did this. This was completely apolitical. It had nothing to do with elections and nothing to do with anything that has anything to do with politics or party. And I know that's true because Representative Martinez said so. Because the plaza and Guyman have a lot in common. They do, yes. That is a community of interest. Listen, I've spent a lot of time out in the Panhandle and in Northwest Oklahoma, and um, they don't. It's like a different world, and that's it's fine. Like they're both good in very different ways. Well, and Andy, one thing I wanted to add is that um, it's also important for listeners to know that this isn't the first time that lines have been drawn in a way. Um, that has this type of representation. Um, if you talk with uh, Congressman Lucas, he'll say that you know there has been a time where he has represented, in words of you know parts of Oklahoma City through the Panhandle in the past. And so this isn't something new to the Oklahoma legislature and finding creative ways to to draw lines with census data. That's exactly right, Bailey. If you look back at the maps from the 80s and the 90s that we had in Oklahoma, they have a similar carve out of Oklahoma County. And back then, the Republicans decried these maps to be a Democratic gerrymander. But now that they're in the majority, they're like, oh, no, this is fine. Uh, Now, a lot has changed. The population has changed a lot over that period. But it was wrong then. It was wrong now. I mean, it was very open that they did it back then to keep uh, a Democrat in that seat. And now they're doing it um, to keep a Republican in the fifth district, right? So if uh, listeners, if you haven't looked at the map that People Not Politicians submitted, uh, you can go to peoplenotpoliticians.org and click on 
um, latest at the top, and you will see there a, a post about the people's map, uh, which is what we're calling it. So we drew this map with all of the same feedback that the legislature had for uh, for their mapping process, right? All the public feedback they made public. Uh, and in addition to that, we had a bunch of feedback from, you know, the 50 or 60 or 70 events that we've done around the state and online over the last two and a half years of working on this issue. And we collected all of that data and, you know, used all of that to kind of inform the process. And uh, I'll just say it, our map is better than theirs in almost every way. One of their talking points is that on the legislature's map, 87% of Oklahomans remain in the same district. Well, on our map, 93% of people remain in their current district. Like, that's a huge deal. You know, 87%, that means that 13% move. And that means that's half a million people. 500,000 people got moved to another district. Uh, most of those were in Oklahoma County. In fact, 227,000 of them were in Oklahoma County that are in a new district. That's a lot of people. Our map still maintains the you know, strong Republican majorities in four out of five districts. And it still means that uh, the fifth district is a slight Republican majority. That hasn't changed. In fact, the proportions are about the same to the maps we've had um, under the people's map. OKC and Tulsa each kind of get their own district. And that keeps the rural areas, districts two, three, and four free or mostly free from any kind of like urban city voter influence, which is a concern we heard from folks in rural areas. They're like, you know, Listen, you know, we don't we don't want that folks in rural areas expressed to us that they were afraid that the needs or desires of people in the metros would overwhelm what they needed in rural areas and they would be further forgotten. Right. And now they've got good representation from uh, Congressman Lucas and uh, Cole and Mullen. And I think there is still, you know, they don't want to see that eroded over the next decade. We, we drew the 5th District uh, almost entirely contained within Oklahoma County. We did keep uh, um, Tinker Air Force Base in the 4th District like it's been for a few decades uh, because that's um, uh, Congressman Cole is on the Armed Services Committee. And there's a lot of public comment that said keep these, uh, keep Tinker and Fort Sill together. So fine. So we only split nine precincts in the entire state. And there's, I think, close to a thousand precincts or something. The legislature split 37 precincts. Uh, we kept nearly every county whole. Um, only, I think only th there's like a few precincts in Cleveland County, a few in Oklahoma County, one in Seminole County. And then we had to split Wagner County because it had a lot of growth up there. Um, we don't divide any racial groups or ethnic communities. And we, one of the things that's really important about that is that the legislature's map, uh, that carve-out in southwest Oklahoma County, is almost entirely Hispanic. And, it and that's the growing population in Oklahoma City. That's exactly right. It, coincidence. <laughs> coincidence. I think coincidence. So. That's just how it happened. Represent they said, anytime you move one line, you have to move another line, Andy. This is very complicated. This is very complicated. It can't just be oversimplified. That's just how the cookie crumbled. Well, Andy, and I have a question for you. Um, what should the listeners expect from next week? So if they're tuning in to the redistricting special session, what should they be listening for? 
Yeah. So the timeline that we know is that uh, Monday will just be gaveling in, gaveling out, and that'll be the first reading of the bills. Um, Tuesday and Thursday will be committee days. Wednesday and Friday will be floor days. So basically, it'll pass. You know, they'll pass on Tuesdays from the House of Origin, pass the floor on Wednesdays, switch, and then other side committee, other side floor on Thursday and Friday. Along the way, I hope I don't. You know, I don't. I don't have a crystal ball. I will say we're trying to push um, for the idea of the well. The reality they don't have to approve the map that they've proposed. They could have. They could uh, choose another map, right? There's been others that have been proposed. Ours is a really good one. Like I, I'm not just saying that because we drew it, but we put two and a half years of work into this. It's very thoughtful. It's very representative, and it's a good map that represents all Oklahomans well. So I would love to see someone propose that as an amendment or whatever the mechanism is. And maybe folks will say, you know what, we've gone too far. We should really, we should pass this other map. So we could see that happen. Um, we could also see the legislature um, acknowledge that, in my mind, the most ethical thing that the politicians can do at this point is to remove themselves from the process next time. Right. So they could they could feasibly pass a bill or a law or uh, or refer a measure to the ballot that would create an independent commission, not for now, but for 10 years from now. Uh, I went through last night and there will only be uh, like 21 or 22 members of the legislature. It's like 14 percent of the legislature is possibly going to be there the next time we do redistricting. Only one member out of 101 um, well, no, none of them it will only 14, only 14% will be able to draw maps next time, but none of them zero will be eligible to be elected under those maps that would go into effect in 2032. Uh, so that means they could pass it now and not affect any of their current members, right? Like this is a thing for the future. This is a legacy thing. I think that's really worthwhile. Um, what I expect will happen, Bailey, to answer your question, is they will come in, pass it, move on. They will probably allow some debate. Um, you know, at this point, I think we've seen more Democrats complain about it, so I expect it'll be a debate on partisan lines. Although I know there are a number of Republicans up there who are not happy with these maps and are concerned they're doing the wrong thing, uh, and so maybe we'll see some bipartisan concern expressed. But I expect it'll fly through pretty quickly. Are any of them concerned enough that they won't vote for them? I haven't heard that, but yeah, we'll right. See what it so their concern is meaningless. Yeah. But one thing we have to also keep in mind is that um, there are consequences when you go against the grain. Yeah. Right. You go against your party. Right. And so, um, for someone to be the lone person, there really isn't benefit for that. Oh, now, no. There's, like there's, over time, you know, you'll be regarded as the person who did the right thing. But in this current time, it is difficult for someone to be that lone voice in a body that controls 80% of the legislature, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right. So, well, you know, we'll see what happens. I, I apologize. I could go in a soapbox about this for a long time. But uh, in short, you know, too long, didn't listen. The map is trash. They should adopt a different one. And 
just go ahead and fix it now. That and was I, an I, excellent I, summary. I, I will say this too. 10 years is a long time and who knows what will happen. At some point, the Republicans have to start, since they're the majority, they have to do the calculus of what if we lose? Now, I don't know that they're going to lose both chambers in the next 10 years. That seems improbable. But at some point in the next, you know. The pendulum always swings at some point. Right. Especially with population change, right? Like demographic shifting, pendulum swing. (laughs) Yeah. And, And politics change too, right? Like people's sentiments change. Uh, and the Democrats, if you talk to old Democrats who were in power, you know, 30 years ago, they will tell you, whoops, we should have fixed this 30 years ago, um, when we had the chance. And, you know, we see this in Virginia right now, the, the Republicans fixed it at the very end and the Democrats were like, well, maybe we keep the power. Uh, and so at some point just doing it now when it's, when you have the power to do so sets a very good precedent for going forward. All right. Uh, well, I'm going to stop talking for a minute, but I also, something else will happen next week that's, uh, I think, pretty important and getting a lot of press, and that is uh, Julius Jones is currently still set to be executed. Um, six days. We have six days for the governor to do the right thing, make the decision on following the recommendations of the Oklahoma Pardon Parole Board or for giving the the go for Julius's execution, right? And so one of the great developments that have happened, um, because the issue of the death penalty is not a partisan issue. Uh, there have been five Republican members of the legislature who have publicly come out and urged the governor, I believe by a letter, urging him to grant clemency to Julius Jones and to not execute him, which is a big deal. Because, I mean, Scott and I talked about it in length last week about um, the polling data that was released and the different pressures that the governor is facing. And so for him to hear from other conservative peers that granting Julius clemency and aligning with the recommendations of this impartial board um, is is a huge development. You know, that press release with those five Republicans calling for it um, was in some ways like a breath of fresh air where it's like, oh, you know, wait a minute, we've kind of forgotten that we can have some bipartisan agreement about this kind of stuff. Uh, And for people to be like, hang on, let's not kill people for not you know, like, well, that's my perspective is let's not kill people. Let's, let's not kill period. people. Right. But, and their, their argument is still sound of like, this is a very serious thing, which we should not do if we are at all uncertain that it's the right thing. Uh, and I think that's really good. Now, reportedly the AG um, is pushing for it. Um, and, you know, I'm sure the governor's got a lot of folks in his ear, uh, many of whom he put in their position to be in his ear. And so he's probably inclined to listen to them, but it's going to be a, a contentious week. I do think it's interesting. All of the members of the legislature who have not said anything about this case, right? Profiles encourage. Yeah. It's, it's just heartbreaking knowing that Julius's family is already receiving notices 
for their loved one's execution. I just can't imagine waiting minute by minute, day by day, on whether my loved one was going to live or die by the state of Oklahoma. And not only just, you know, be killed, but in the ways of knowing what happened in the previous execution, right? That governmental officials are trying to cover up, trying to tell us all that, oh no, everything was fine when you had people literally there saying that wasn't normal, that wasn't fine. And so I just hope for the sake of humanity that the governor make a decision swiftly so that people are, it's it's just cruel to make people wait to know whether their loved one or not is going to, to die. So, but I hope ultimately he does the right thing and operates to the point that Scott raised last week, that it is his constitutional authority to grant clemency. He can do that because he has the power to do that. So I hope that he operates in his authority and will trust the recommendation of the process that he said that he was waiting for before he made a decision. So now that we have that recommendation, I hope that he honors it. Agreed. 100. I agree. All right, folks. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks again to our guests. Uh, we had on earlier at the beginning. Thanks to our uh, all of our hosts. Scott, thanks for being here. Scott gave me a salute, but that doesn't translate well on podcasts. I was in the middle of I was in the middle of a drink. Scott, uh, Scott threw a, a stack of money at the screen and said, "This is for you, Andy." <laughs> if only, if only. It, was, it all had his own face on it, though. I think he's been he's, he's been crafting this week. So, <laughs> <laughs> Bailey, thanks for being here as well. Thank you, Andy. Wouldn't miss it. Listeners, we will keep a close eye on special session next week and do an emergency pod if necessary. I don't think it'll be because it's a pretty narrow call, but whenever they go in for special session, I'm always aware that things can get sideways on us. So we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, don't forget to follow Let's Fix This on Twitter at Let's Fix This OK. You can follow Scott at SC Melson. You can follow Bailey at the Bailey M. Perkins. Sure. Still the same. You can follow Bailey at Bailey M. Perkins and me at Andy OKC. Uh, and don't forget that decisions are made by those who show up. We'll see you next week.